we can really just sum up today's message as know the humility of Jesus to know the wisdom of the Lord. is Peter Ting, uh, and my wife Lisa and I are uh, members here at WSBC, and it's again my privilege uh, and just my honor to bring you God's word today. So when I was young, I collected a lot of sports cards, and so I collected football, I collected basketball, I collected baseball cards, and I had binders and binders and binders full of these cards, and I organized them, and I paid a lot of care and attention to them, I organized by year by the brand, by the company that printed it, by the teams. And so they were really heavy and they took a substantial part of my room. And so a lot of kids now, you collect Pokemon cards. And I look at my kids' collection, you may think that you have a lot, but it wasn't, it, it's nothing compared to my sports card collection that I used to have. And so a few years ago on a trip back to the US, um, Lisa and the girls got a glimpse, they got to see uh, some of my massive sports card collection. And so when they saw the card, the, the cards, they kind of had the same reaction or the same opinion of them as my parents did. They thought that they're, they kind of take up a lot of space, that it's better just to kind of get rid of them, to, to move them out. They're kind of just sitting there not doing anything. Uh, but for me, I based my thoughts, I based my opinions uh, on them, on what I valued, that these cards are, are hard to get. They're out of print now, that I had rookie cards of players that are retired now. And so that if I brought them to the right sports collector, if I happen to just keep them for a little bit longer, they had value to me and sentimental value as well. And so because of how differently that we perceived and how we judged these cars based on the value on our own standards and our own criteria for judging, then we had different opinions and we had different feelings towards these cards. And so what we value together, what we value as wisdom our values, they shape how we live our lives. We study through Corinthians, we see Paul writing in these first four chapters fervently to the church to address the issue of disunity and division in the Corinthian church. And in this chapter, he is specifically addressing now one of the key roots of that division, that the members of the church are relying on values and worldly wisdom rather than on the wisdom of God. And so because they hold true to these values of the world, they will judge in a way that reflects those values. They will judge the church. They will judge apostles. They will judge with each other, anyone else that doesn't agree with their opinion. And the way that they judge is a way that reflects their adherence to worldly wisdom and worldly values. And so we are distracted by the world. Our values and how we perceive and judge is heavily shaped by our surroundings in our culture. And so Corinth, as we've heard before, it's a fast-paced, economically uh, successful, and international city. And so you can see that there'll be a lot of introduction of values of the world to be successful, to be wealthy. And we'll see even further on later in further weeks as we study Corinthians, just the sins that have seeped in, struggles with sexual immorality in the church. And so we can see how these world values affect our church, affect the Corinthian church, and how world values affect our church, that we allow values to seep in, that we may be checking our phones now, waiting to see the next 11-11 deal and hoping that 
we can get that because we want to save money. That's our value. And so I really want to encourage us as we listen to this today, as we see this, that we focus on the wisdom of the, of the Lord and not on of the world. At first glance, we may look at the Corinthian church. They may even appear to be successful. They may be, appear to be doing kind of well from the outside. It was filled with lots of members of the Corinthian community. And so it seems that they, there were some that were definitely rich or some that did business there. And so many impressive apostles, church leaders and teachers, they went through this church. They, they taught here. So people there must have heard some amazing sermons and amazing rhetoric. And so because of that, that is where they lost their guard. And that's a place for us to start dissecting how pride and disunity were sown. The church themselves, they seemed to believe that they were the best that they could be at that time, that they had arrived as a church. We had Paul, we had all these great teachers come in to teach. We have many members in our, in our congregation that are, that are financially well off. All this exposure to, to the word and, were, and leaders that came that were respected. And so they believed that because that they sat under the teaching of these great teachers, that they were spiritually mature. But over the past few Sundays that we've seen in Corinthians, Paul writes to this church to point out how some of the heart and underlying problems that are there have caused disunity to the point that others outside of the church observing in would even see these issues and see this infighting and find it important enough to report it to Paul. In today's scripture, Paul continues his exhortation to the Corinthian church to be above what their culture and what the worldly values dictate in esteem and to truly seek the values and wisdom of God. So in other words, we can really just sum up today's message as know the humility of Jesus to know the wisdom of the Lord. We have to know the humility of Jesus first before we can know the wisdom of the Lord. And we'll look at today our scripture in two main points. And so these are the points that Paul is kind of exhorting again and summarizing to the church. The first one is wise up. And the second one is rise up, wise up and rise up. Wise up looks at the verses here, the first part, how we obtain true wisdom and not to be tricked by the false worldly wisdom. And the second point, rise up, he's looking at those that are called to teach and lead the church, as well as all of the church who follow and serve Jesus. And so to rise up from the worldly wisdom in understanding judgment, in understanding the ultimate judgment, and who the ultimate judge is, Jesus Christ. It's my prayer today that as we go through this scripture, we honestly view how important it is for us to abandon and put down these worldly distractions, to put down the influence and the values of this world, and examine ways that we may have already begun to let our hearts wander and conform to the pattern of this world. But rather, we need to be pray. We need to pray to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, and we need to humbly seek His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let's look at the first part of our scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18 to 23. So it starts at 18 to 23. I can read, and you can follow along, or just listen. Verse 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas 
or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Our first point, wise up. We are looking at how Paul now is instructing the church to put down the wisdom of the world, how to truly gain wisdom and value what the Lord values as wise. We've seen so far in this letter how Paul continues to drive home the point, the need for humility, the need for unity in the church. There is division in this church. Many groups have shown loyalty or following different leaders that pass through. They live in a sophisticated city where the citizens and other members of the church will value uh, and prize wisdom, eloquence, rhetoric, and that's what's really important to them. So in his plea for unity and humility, God, uh, Paul shows to the Corinthian church the flaws of trusting and leaning on the wisdom of the world rather than on the wisdom of God. From these first chunk of verses, 18 to 23, we can sum up these four characteristics about the wisdom of the world with four D-letter words. Deceptive, deflated, defeated, and divisive. The first point, deceptive. When we believe we are wise, when we know things about the world, we have the false assumption that we must be wise. If we know how to order things quickly online, if we know how to navigate through uh, this street, then we think that we are wise. We're tricked into believing some of these falsehoods. The Corinthians thought that they were wise to attach themselves to a particular leader. They thought that this leader showed brilliance, this, this speaker, this, this teacher, this apostle that demonstrated uh, uh, wonderful speaking abilities, and that is what the world values. And so they took that as a point of pride. They took that as that we have the wisdom to align ourselves with this the leader who fulfills the standards of this age, what this city thinks is great. And so it's similar now, even these standards of that age is still similar to the worldly wisdom even in our current age now. We look at the outside appearance. We look at a person's status, at a person's wealth, at a person's guanxi, their relationships, or any other flashy features. And so in using these worldly standards, the Corinthian church is also prone then to self-flattery. And so we can see how that is linked to being deceived. And so it's not always deception that may be caused by just being tricked by the world, but at times it can either even be a self-deception caused by our own sinful nature and our own tendencies towards pride. And so we will have efforts or we'll have different ways to disguise our motives when we sometimes align ourselves with things that we know do not follow biblical principles. We may justify and convince ourselves in order to be tricked or to be compromised, to just agree with some of the values of the world. But Paul here calls for the church to have a realistic view and writes that if anyone thinks he is wise, that he should first become a fool so that he could again become wise. So what does that mean? That means we need to reject the world's wisdom. We need to appear foolish even in the presence of the world, that leaders that co-workers, that governments may think that you're foolish for following Christ. Paul calls us to, that we must renounce the wisdom of the world and prescribes for us to be humble in order to gain true wisdom and know the wisdom of the Lord. The second feature here of wisdom, of worldly wisdom, is that it is deflated. 
on one hand, you look at wisdom of the world, it seems to be puffed up. It seems to be uh, wanting to be heard by others, to be proud of boasting, of being loud and pompous. But at the end of that, it ends up being filled with hot air. It ends up being deflated. And so Paul writes again that the wisdom of the world is folly with God. In front of the Lord, this foolishness, God mentions many times that the world's wisdom is just foolishness in the Lord's sight. And so Paul mentioning about the folly of the world's wisdom is not one that he just expresses about his own personal opinion. It's not just him saying, I think the world is foolish, but we can see it throughout Scripture, and we can see that none of the wisdom of the world is hidden from the Lord's sight. And so here Paul also mentions a quote from Job 5.13. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Those that are wise in their own craftiness, confidence in itself and pride, are found that their schemes are brought to a quick end by the Lord. And so even today's scripture reading, we also see just how when we try to rely on ourselves, that we see that it is a pale in comparison to the Lord's wisdom. The third D word here is defeated. The world's wisdom is actually defeated. It does not compare to the true wisdom of God. And it's seen here in Psalm 94.11 uh, that Paul quotes to be stripped of any power. Paul writes, the Lord, or Psalm 94.11 writes, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. But a breath here shows just the wisdom of the world is only concerned with what is temporary, things that will eventually pass away. And so the world is preoccupied with these things, with, with the market, with, with economics, with resources. The thoughts of the wise are powerless and futile. This prideful wisdom is ultimately going to account for nothing in eternity. 1 John 2.17 tells us that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so our physical bodies are frail and temporary, but our souls are eternal. And so what are the things that the world is concerned about now that will not exist eternally? What are things in our lives that we occupy ourselves that will not exist eternally? Real estate, money, medicine, physical health, vaccines, all these things we have a need to, to make judgment on, but it is not something that we should be concerned with to the point that it take, that we have to draw from worldly wisdom. And so shouldn't we be wrapped up and more concerned with the eternal, with things above in the gospel? There were things in the context of Corinth that people could see as important. And so they believed that those things were more important to them than even Jesus. But those things were short-lived. God's word and our souls are eternal. And so church, I, I, I plead with you just to concern yourselves with matters of the eternal, not of the temporary. Examine yourself of how much of the temporary has seeped into your heart? How much time do you spend concerned with the temporary things rather than eternal matters? The fourth and final D word here is regarding the wisdom of the world is divisive. And so Paul closes up the section by going back to how this unity still exists, especially when they're leaning on the wisdom of the world. And so you can see how they've aligned themselves in verse 22, he mentioned with the specific leader to the church. They again place a stake and saying that I'm a shareholder, I'm a supporter of this leader. It's showing to them that 
they have something to boast about, that I supported the right guy, I supported the right leader, because based on worldly standards, he's great, he's able to speak well, he's able to preach well. Human leaders, no matter if it's in a church, if it's in politics, if it's in an organization of a company, are all still fallible. They're all unable to be given the status of the ultimate authority or the perfect role model. And so Paul here writes that all things are yours, that we have no grounds or any right on our own to boast because everything and everybody that we have received is a gift from God to us. All of our life is a gift from the Lord, including any of the teachers and leaders that he has sent to the churches to teach and instruct and to give the wisdom of the Lord to undeserving sinners and so that we have a chance to hear the wisdom and grace of the Lord. They're all belonging to Christ. And so before any of us can make this preference that puts some of these leaders on a higher pedestal above others, we have to be careful about what we're boasting in. We have to be careful. We can't make comments that I only read books about Piper. I only read Keller. I only read Nine Marks materials. All of these ministries, all of these ministers, they're actually all under God's sovereignty. So if we follow the wisdom of the Lord, Paul here shows that we should be learning and accessing the giftings and the teachings of all of these different leaders in the faith to know more of the Lord. The church and these resources are beyond just a good book or beyond just a good, good sermon. Viewing the church only as fellowship, but not really embracing the word and allowing the spirit to show us the Lord's wisdom and work on our own means that we may actually miss out on what he intends for us to hear, not realizing that all of this is yours as Paul is writing here. And so Paul continues experiences here, whether life and death, present and future, these are all things that belong to the, to the purpose of God and therefore of his followers to experience these things through his wisdom, with his wisdom. And he doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 23 that you are Christ's. If you follow him, you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Again, we can see having access to the Lord when we live in a way that shows who our master is, Jesus. And so the way the Corinthians here were living, that they were claiming to be their own masters, that they were having a stake in their own leaders, taking pride in themselves. Whereas followers of Christ need to know that we really belong to Christ and ultimate to God, and so then it, to the Father. And then it shows the will of the Father that Christ is God's, that Christ is God, but that in humility, he submitted himself to the will of the Father to take a lowly place as man in order to deliver and save man. Those that are truly wise in God's sight will be the ones that deliberately reject worldly wisdom and humbly submit and follow Jesus. So now let's look at the second main point of our scripture today, to rise up. The first point we looked at, wise up, we looked at what should be the core and the foundation of where our wisdom comes from, not from this world, but from the Lord. And rise up here is looking at how that wisdom should shift and change our views on the church, on church leadership, and even encourage us to rise up as Christ's followers. So listen as I read and follow along uh, from 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 through 13. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, 
who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And with that, you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. To help reframe the Corinthians' view of the leaders of the church and how much they're taking pride in them, Paul here continues here to reset their roles to reshape their thoughts about it. He closes up the portion of this letter regarding the division and pride of the church. And so Paul now writes to show them how the teachers of the faith, these apostles, we can, he wants to show them to see their missense, uh, misplaced sense of pride or boasting. And so the section about rise up relates back to the servants and the teachers of the world. And so Paul provides a view of how teachers such as himself, Apollos, uh, Cephas should be viewed by the church. And he specifically uses two key words here in this passage. He uses the words servants and stewards. Not leaders, not respected leaders, but servants and stewards. The first word servant, this means that he is one that is under authority of another. He is only doing the work of another master. And so in this case, their master is Jesus Christ. The word here can be translated as under rower. And so an under rower is the rower is the low position in the boat, the one that, that's rowing the, sh the ship. And so you can see that they're the ones that are doing the work of the master, of the one in control, in charge of the ship. Paul uses this illustration language to, again, stress that they shouldn't be the ones that are praised. There shouldn't be a man-centered praise in the church, but rather they're resp responding to a higher authority, and they're following the Lord and doing his work and not their own. So then it gives an idea of a boss. Who are the bosses of, of Apollos and Paul and other leaders and teachers of the church? Was it the members of the church? Was it the congregation? Was it the deacons? No, they were serving ultimately for the Lord in their work. This is helpful for us too, to reframe, uh, to reframe this idea because on one hand, you had some Corinthians in the church who esteemed Paul and the leaders too highly that they used their own values of worldly wisdom. They believed and judged to follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas because of their skills, of their speech, or other superficial reasons. And so they made their claims, their judgment based on that. But then on the other hand, if you were pro-Apollos, if you were following him, that means you were anti-Paul, that you would cast judgment and look for ways to discredit or ways to tear down and thought low of the other leaders. And so in using the word servant, Paul is painting the picture that the leader of the church are not to be exalted too high. They're not to be treated too low, that they are servants of the Lord. The second word here, stewards, also uh, we see this is very familiar in the New Testament and in many um, 
parables of Jesus that this can be interpreted as a, as a housekeeper or as an overseer. And so it also describes the work of these teachers that they had to feed, they had to care for, they had to manage the work of the, the, the members of the church. And so to those servants or slaves below them, these stewards would appear as a master, as a leader. But then at the same time, these stewards were using resources and wisdom and tools that were not their own, but they were on loan from the master, from the ultimate master. So they were serving and they were submitting to the master. They weren't doing this work necessarily based on their own initiative, but rather under the master's bidding and the master's instruction. And so not only that, but the steward has nothing to give except for what he has already received from the master. And that one day he be held accountable for the quality, for, for their efforts, for their work, for their faithfulness. And it says that it is required that they are to be found faithful here in verse 2. These two words are placed here. They're important servant and stewards to help, again, let us have an accurate picture of how the church should view leaders and teachers, pastors and elders, and also to see why and to whom these leaders and teachers do their work for. But also Paul states here that these things do not allow for the church to slip into a judging attitude, that these leaders are humbly accountable to their master to leave the judgment ultimately to the Lord, the one true judge. The judgment will be from the Lord and will be made known. And a lot of times we are quick to make judgments based on the external but the Lord knows the heart. And so you can see the leaders, teachers again here, they're responsible for the mysteries of God, the divine revelation of God, knowing that these servants would be, knowing that the, the people would be unable to change the, their own hearts on their own, but these leaders would only be serving as messengers and bringers of the word to teach as appropriately based on the spiritual maturity of the congregation. And so Paul is stating this to help reform this young church's view on those that preach and teach. It's something that is applicable to all of us as believers as well. If you are a follower of Christ, then also his servant, then you are also his servant and his steward. And so what are ways that you see the scripture and think about how you are to rise up as well as a servant, as a steward for the Lord? And so Paul differentiates now the roles of these leaders the dual responsibility and the view that they should not be treated as masters, as kings, but that they were only servants of the real master, Jesus Christ. But then at the same time, that these men, these leaders carried an important responsibility and a tremendous privilege to steward and bring the word to the church. And so Paul shifts now and he continues his argument to look at the members of the church are the, not the ones that can judge these leaders and teachers. And then he explores this idea of judgment. This is something that comes up earlier in Corinthians, the idea of judging. And so God is the one true judge. And with these next verses, Paul states a few of the key points about judgment. Basically, we can see that he creates some judgment is not statements here. And so the first one you can see judgment is not done by others. So verse 3 shows that his servanthood, his stewardship should not be judged by a human court. Judgment is not done by the others, but it should only be done by God. The Corinthian church at this time, they had an attitude that highly valued human judgment. They wanted that feedback, how they were so easily affected by worldly wisdom and to be praised and to be puffed up. Paul wanted to show that while he was a servant of Jesus and had a responsibility to steward, that they were not his judge, they were not his masters. The second one point here, judgment is not done by ourselves. Verse four here shows Paul saying that judgment isn't done by he himself and not even by his own conscience. 
Verse four is a little bit tricky. I kind of read it over a few times, especially if you don't have a, a law background like me, but it really shows you the idea that Paul says that even in the process of self-examination, of self-searching, even if he's unable to find any fault that he feels he is, he is able to stand before the Lord, that there's still not enough evidence there for him to win him his innocence, that we ultimately are not the ones that can dictate our own innocence and determine if we are guilty or not. And so here Paul says that he himself believes that he has a clear conscience when he says, I am not aware of anything against myself, but it's not always so clear cut for us. Sometimes we feel like we, we haven't done anything wrong. If there's a bike accident or if there's a, a, an accident on the street with a scooter, both sides could possibly convince themselves or believe that we were doing the right thing. I was in this right lane. This person was in the right lane, that we, I was in the right and so Paul here is saying that to his knowledge, his conscience may not bring up anything against him. He may feel like he's in the right, but that fact alone isn't enough to acquit, enough to, to exonerate or to find him not guilty. That's not enough at all. In the latter part of verse 4, we can see again that he knows that the Lord is the one who is the ultimate judge. The third judgment statement here, judgment is not done prematurely. That is, it should be done at the wrong time. And so we're talking here about judgment, about final judgment here, not to pronounce it before the time, specifically before the day when the Lord Jesus returns, who will come to bring the, to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. This is the final judgment. Right now, any judgments made by people, by the church, it's inconclusive. You're unable to find every detail of the heart. You're unable to find things that are hidden away. But God is the one that is able to make the most accurate and final and also quite scary judgment because he knows our heart. He knows our intents, the things that we do in secret. He knows nothing will be hidden at that time. And the fourth one, judgment is not avoidable. That this final judgment and condemnation will only be from God. And so this shows the urgency now again for us to know that judgment is coming. If you have been revealed the mysteries of salvation, of this divine revelation that we know judgment is coming, that we know we will be in front of our creator, that we stand in front of him as he is the judge. And he won't be at that point looking at if we were tried hard enough, if we had good effort. He won't be looking at just us saying, oh, well, we're good for most of the time because this ultimate judgment, this final judgment requires perfection. I don't know about you, but I feel like I can say safely that everyone I know, including myself, we have not been able to reach that perfection. We will be scrambling we may be trying to make a decent argument in front of this judge for our case. But honestly, the best argument we can make is Jesus Christ, that he is the one that has lived a perfect life for us, fully human, so that his perfection is what can be used to satisfy the wrath of God and to pay the price for our sins. So as Christian workers, how then can we look at this section? How can we be challenged to continue to grow? And one way, it's actually very freeing because it shifts the attention of judgment. It takes it away from people and others to God. It shifts man-fearing tendencies to care about what others think, to care about what others judge on us. And it's still beneficial at times to hear constructive feedback too, but now we have the freedom from people-pleasing bondage and the private judgment of others. And so are you following God? Is your heart honoring Him and glorifying Him alone? Are you able to rise up from the traps of what the world may view as judgment in order to follow Jesus Christ, 
to follow as his servant, as his steward, and to know that he is your ultimate judge. It also shifts our thoughts away from two extremes of sin that we may encounter here, self-justification and self-condemnation. So these are often two extremes that our self, our sinful selves can do when confronted with judgment. Either we have self-justification, we're too arrogant to justify, and we try to justify our actions in a twisted way of self-justification. That if this person judges me, I already have a list in my head of why what I'm doing is, is okay, how I have been able to justify that to myself. Or on the other hand, we may have a very low self-worth and opinion, and then we condemn ourselves to every fault. And so when God examines our ministry, he is not scrutinizing based on success or conversions or popularity or approval ratings, but he's looking at our faithfulness. And so the church, how do we judge? On one hand, we've heard already in Corinthians 2.15 that the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. But now here in this scripture, it's saying that we shouldn't be judged by others or even judge ourselves, that only the Lord judges. So how do we reconcile these statements? In this context, the Corinthians here were judging, comparing Paul and Apollos and Cephas. But their judgments were false and worthless and based on values and wisdom of the world that was false and worthless. And so Paul told them that it was less than nothing to him to even be judged by them, that their intent and their heart for judging didn't merit enough worth for Paul to even consider or think about it. But then to back to the question of how to reconcile all this, we need to stop and reflect and ask, what is the purpose when I am judging? What is the purpose of judgment? What is the intended result of judgment? Is it to put down? Is it to put a label on someone and say, okay, well, that is bad. You know, that person is doing this to exclude. And so I like to believe that we don't think that's our intent, but we may indirectly at times place those labels, change our behavior, withhold love or care or patience when we cast judgment on others. So judgment does require careful discerning and wisdom when making um, that call. But even more so, when we make a judgment, it needs to be balanced out with love. And so this is an emotional, sentimental, self-glorifying love, but it is self-sacrificial love uh, exhibited by Jesus. Love that is building, that is building up into a community. And so how is that possible? So let's think through an example. If there's a church member that is being disciplined because their actions and their words do not reflect one that is showing redemption or consistent to one that has a repentant heart, then the other members of the church need to make a vote. They need to make a call and judgment uh, regarding church discipline for that member. This is done in love. It is done in a continued action that after even the judgment and decision and the vote is done, that the church is continuing to pray for and seeking reconcilia reconciliation for that individual, for that individual's relationship with the Lord and then back with the church as well. On one hand, judgment needs to be made that, that, that we need to see uh, based on what our limited vision can see. But again, we have to make that judgment call knowing that the final judgment has not yet been made because we do not have the authority to make that final judgment. But until the day that the final judgment does call, we have a responsibility to include love in our judgments and attempts towards reconciliation so that the individual can again stand before the ultimate judge on the final day. Our judgment cannot have condemnation. Our judgment is not one that will condemn and give us the authority to put final judgment, but that we do need to have the final judgment in mind so that we are seeking for others to be directed back to Jesus, back to the master and the final judge.
all those above in terms of addressing teachers in the world of the word and the church as servants and stewards, as well as the fact that we looked at the ultimate final judgment comes from the Lord and not from ourselves. Paul explains now that all of this explanation was to benefit the Corinthian church so that they had a proper view and not a worldly view of pastors, of judgment, of leaders. And so, yes, while these previous statements are valid points about Christian leadership, they're still valuable here, too, to and uh, applicable to Paulus and himself. But this message should also be loud and clear for the rest of the church as servants of the Lord. And lastly, it should be a benefit as well for us. And so Paul continues here. He writes, um, may uh, learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And what he's talking about here about what is written could be quoted as what is quoted, what he quotes in the Holy Scriptures from the Bible, from the Old Testament. And so this statement here by Paul is to challenge the church in Corinth and to us really as well to really value the words that we hear, the words from the Bible that are God-breathed. And so rather than placing the value and emphasis on a pastor's rhetoric on on other sources as well. So the Corinthian church valued wisdom, debate, and Paul here again stresses and attempts to redirect their attention and focus again back to the Holy Word as the main focus of our faith. And so in his persuasion afterwards in verse 7, Paul again asks the questions with the word uh, singular you, so that he would be, the reader would be applying these questions directly to themselves in an effort to have the Spirit work out and point out their pride. Paul asks here, how can you be proud of anything at all isn't all that you have to boast about from God? And so you can see here that he is stressing again that we have no place to question that. We have no place to, to, to receive these gifts and then boast in them. That when you receive grace and favor of the Lord, who are we to boast about it? To think that we've earned these on our own accord. That it isn't something that we receive from the Lord. And lastly, to really drive the point home in this last section, Paul examining and looking at the roots of pride and the heart of boasting of this unity uses sarcasm in a way, an irony. And so the Corinthian church believed that they were successful, they were well-researched, they were effective, they were mature, but, strong, but Paul strongly contrasts their, that relative ease and comfort of the Christian life in the Corinth with the trials that were endured by the apostles that the Corinthians were so quick to boast about. And he uses strong irony here to state how the Corinthians already have received so much. While there was prosperity and riches in Corinth, the phrase of all you want here can also be translated as you are already full. And so the full here can imply feeding, but it can also imply feeding in terms of the spiritual. Receiving spiritual food and giftings and teaching from the Lord and the apostles. In their excess, they have idolized these leaders that fed them. They have placed their focus on being fed rather than who is giving to these leaders, who is the one that has equipped and called these leaders and gifted these leaders to their church. Paul is using extreme sarcasm here to shatter this false image of the apostles. And he makes a switch in verse 9 to contrast this theology of glory with now the theology of the cross and of suffering. That while these members of the Corinthian church were so well fed and spiritually full, they were neglectant. They neglected to see the suffering of the cross and they neglected to see the suffering of those that follow Jesus and his servants and his stewards. These apostles, because of Christ, have been shunned by the world. The worldly wisdom thinks that they are foolish, but they continue to humbly submit to Christ to know his wisdom. The ones following Jesus have experienced and will experience physical lacking, hardships, and persecution even to this day. So why is this section here, this part that he says, we are fool for Christ's sake. You are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. 
Again, the greater purpose of Paul here is to stress unity in the church by weeding out pride and sowing humility. Paul has written this first section of the letter to the Corinthians, really drilling home the idea of unity after hearing that the Corinthian church is quite segregated because of pride, because of worldly wisdom, because of misplaced loyalty. They use the wrong source of wisdom, the wisdom of the world, to make their judgments. So now Paul is contrasting these lives of the Corinthians to the lives of the apostles and teachers of the word, that they are on display for the world to watch as they suffer and endure these things for the cross. And this is what the Corinthian church really should be considering, valuing the cross rather than valuing comfort, riches, personal pride, and wisdom. And we can be thinking about this for ourselves as well. We often want to have some kind of, some sort of popularity, some recognition for our work, some reputation for our work. All the while we want to serve the Lord in a selfless way. It's a very difficult balance to do so. We don't realize sometimes how spiritually well-fed we are. We take it for granted and we make decisions based on the worldly wisdom part of our lives. We have a lot to consider. How do we approach our lives and make judgments? Do we rely more on the wisdom of the world when we make these judgments rather than on the Lord's wisdom? How do we work in the workplace? Do we work in a way that fears people, that fears the culture of the world, that fears our boss? Do we adhere to the culture, to the worldly wisdom of working Jojo Leo 996 because that is what the culture wants, because that is what's demanded? And lastly, even in our own church, are we viewing things with the worldly wisdom when we make decisions? Do we use that kind of mindset? Do we condemn others? Do we make judgment as if we were the ones that are able to make that final judgment, as if we had that authority? Do we make judgment for the purpose of allowing others to grow closer to God, of trying to redirect them to God, or we do judgment in a way that we can feel good about ourselves. We should conclude, when we use one set of values and wisdom, one could see and think that a massive collection of, of sports cards seems like a big waste. But then if you use a different source of values and wisdom, then you may view this differently. And so if we approach our lives, if we approach our church, if we approach our relationships, and even if we approach our own identity with that of worldly standards and wisdom, we're going to be using the wrong source of wisdom to make our judgment. We're going to be opening and allowing pride and disunity, and ultimately we'll be fooling ourselves into eternal death. Our source of wisdom needs to come from the Lord, and that's only done by humbly seeking and submitting to Jesus, allowing us to wise up, to grow in our wisdom of the Lord, and then our response to his wisdom is to rise up as we serve him fully, as we are his servants and his stewards, and until he returns for that final judgment. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, Lord God, that we may be reliant on you, on your word as our source of wisdom. And Lord, that your spirit would help our hearts to examine and search for how we have relied on the wisdom of this world rather than submitting to you. We love you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.